0: We can't go to work if we are sick. And if we're not at work, the economy suffers. And the economy suffers, and then we're not able to go to work because the jobs are gone.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of The Medical Matrix. I'm your host, Dr. Rosie Sender, and my co-host today is McKenna Rice. She is currently a medical student at UC Davis. So I wanted to give two disclaimers to before we start this podcast. The first is that the aim of the podcast is to educate on innovations and topical issues that are shared between medicine, technology and business. But we felt that COVID-19 is the global burden of our time. So there will be a handful of episodes uh, devoted to it. I have a second disclaimer, which is whatever we discussed today about SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 is based on evidence that we have at this point in time. We are on a steep learning curve for this virus. So what is said today may change. With that being said, our guests today are Dr. Margaret McLean, who is the Associate Director and Director of Bioethics at the Markle Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University, and she's a longtime writer and expert on pandemics and ethics. And we also have Dr. Faisal Mirza, who is an orthopedic surgeon, advisor, artist, author, entrepreneur. Dr. Faisal is a board certified orthopedic surgeon in Santa Cruz County. He was trained at uh, University of Western Ontario and McMaster University. And this was followed by an academic career at Stanford and the VA in Palo Alto. He subsequently worked at the FDA and Amgen. So Dr. Mirza continues to innovate with novel IP and startups and has published and lectured internationally. So thank you both for joining us today. How are you all doing?
2: Great. Thank you for having us.
1: Yes, thank you. So as we are dealing with SARS-CoV-2, there are so many challenges that we are being faced in every aspect of our lives. And the thing that has come to my mind multiple times during this pandemic is that we should have had better control. So pandemic occurrences are not an issue of if, but a matter of when. So, SARS CoV 1 and MERS were harbingers of things to come for SARS CoV 2. And epidemiologists and infectious disease doctors were already warning about a pandemic with SARS CoV 2 when early cases were occurring in Wuhan. Yet, it took the WHO until March 11th to state that this was a pandemic. And so, I think that probably allowed a lot of complacency for governments worldwide and not taking this as seriously as they should have from the get-go. So what I'm posing is that for the future, we're going to still see pandemics. And so do we need to set now international pandemic protocols with national and state protocols as well I think that, ethically speaking,
0: what we learned from, from SARS-CoV-1 was the importance of preparedness, of being prepared for the next pandemic, because as you said, there will be another one. And, and I also think we should count on COVID-19 making a return in the fall and maybe a rip-roaring return in the fall. And not forget that as the economy is, quote-unquote, opening up, there are still people getting sick, there are still people dying, and we still don't know half of what we need to know about this virus and how it affects us as individuals and then within communities. So, I think the ethical mandate, the primary ethical mandate for us is to be prepared. And that is on all three of those levels, right? On a global scale, on a national scale, and on a community scale. And, you know, communication between those kind of levels of oversight is going to be increasingly important because a pandemic, by definition, is a global problem. And so you can't fix it by fixing the Bay Area or you can't fix it by isolating the United States and saying, well, we'll take care of our own. You've got to have this broad view of how we can work together across national boundaries and across cultures in order to address what is really at root a human problem.
2: Yeah, I agree. I just want to reiterate, I think that's a, uh, I fully agree with everything Margaret said. And I would like to add though, that it's not about control, it's about managing. Because a pandemic is akin to a global hurricane. You can't control the hurricane. All you can do is manage the outcome, the results and its effects. And you can prepare for it, and you can try and create a risk mitigation protocols, policies, and administrative accountability for that, but you can't really control what happens. And so I would say absolutely from an ethical, clinical, policy, governmental, obligatory, humane perspective, I think all of those matter. And it's absolutely essential that we manage future pandemics by understanding and what's happening currently and taking it to the next level it's one thing and rosie and i you and i have talked about it this with a colleague and we've talked about it offline before as well and the important thing is it's not just about knowing okay how many cases how many deaths where is it going where are the clusters but it's also important to have a live feedback in terms of treatments results and outcomes and That feedback loop needs to be ongoing. I mean, this is not something that's going to disappear. We're going to have patients that are going to have long-term consequences, whether it's from lung or other organ systems. And we need to be able to understand this for a long time. And as you know, like many experts have said, this may be more akin to something like HIV, where is this something that's going to be a true vaccine development uh, that's going to occur quickly, like the flu? which may be partially effective? Or is it going to be something more akin to a retrovirus, which can take many, many years that may have limited or hopefully successful developments of a therapeutic option?
1: Yeah. And I think those are very important points from both of you. And and one of the things that I think should be stated is that this is going to be around for a long time you're right it's not going to be this year this is going to be for years essentially for this virus it's going to continue to infect until we have either one of two things you get 60 to 70 percent of people infected worldwide and that's herd immunity and then it doesn't even mean that the virus is gone it just means it's slowed down enough that it's infecting much slower or you develop a vaccine and that's the other question Will we be able to develop an effective vaccine? How long will it take? Are we going to mount a robust immune response to this? There's a lot of questions we don't know because we don't understand this virus fully. And to your point, Faisal, when you were saying the long-term consequences, medical consequences for those who have been infected, right? Some of the medical comorbidities that they may sustain from this. That's something that we still don't know enough about because we don't know the full effect of this virus. We're finding out all the time, you know, new signs or symptoms or ways that it's affecting different populations, people of different ages. There's so much uncertainty right now, but preparedness and the transparency, I think, are two things that we we need. Transparency between organizations, between countries in order to try to effectively slow this down, you know, in a way that we can manage this.
2: I agree. Without raising any political ramifications, what I would say is that the transparency component is important because, for example, right now we're seeing more and more cases coming out of Russia. We already suspect that there may have been a reduced or lack of transparency in China. And personally, I'm concerned that we don't have full transparency from our country. And that is scary. And from all aspects, I think from an ethical obligation, transparency, and I would actually ask Margaret uh, your thoughts on the, the ethical considerations of pandemics and diseases and how important transparency is purely from a humanitarian, ethical perspective.
0: Our ethical thinking is only as good as the fact set that we have and if we have an incomplete understanding, either because we really don't know or because we're not getting all the facts that we need, it's problematic for us. Our ethical thinking becomes hampered by a lack of transparency. And so in order for both individuals and communities to make decisions, about access to health care, about how to respond to infectious disease, et cetera. We need as full an understanding of the implications and ramifications of COVID-19, realizing that everything we do, and that's what makes this, this one so hard, Everything we do is provisional because this virus is a master of surprise. So, you know, we start out at the beginning. Well, it seems not to be affecting children, it seems to be affecting older adults. Okay, we'll go with that. Oh, 30 year olds are having strokes post COVID. Well, that's a surprise. Oh, children are getting inflammatory disease post-COVID. Well, that's a surprise. And I'm just waiting for next week's medical surprise because this infection, as Faisal said earlier, is having sequelae that we did not predict. And I think that we will be in both societal and medical uncertainty for a while. Which means our ethics and our ethical thinking has to be flexible, has to be nimble. We have to be willing to say, okay, it's not just this population. It's a larger population. What does that mean for us in terms of our approaches to this medically, in terms of our resource allocation? You know, ethics has got to be really nimble right now.
2: That's a really good point. I never thought about nimbleness of ethics or the ethical transparency. And that actually, it's new to me. It's a new concept to me. You always feel like ethics are things that people discuss and and talk about in the background. But when things happen in such rapid, sequential manner, such as pandemics, you have to act and you have to make decisions. And I know we're going to get into it a little bit later, but just in the process of governance and policy within hospitals and trying to be quick, nimble, and safe and effective with how we take care of our patients within the risk mitigation of hospital and medical management has been a real challenge. And I would say that, and I I think many physicians in the medical community and all healthcare workers would agree that this has probably been Certainly my greatest challenge from a humanitarian, ethical, Hippocratic oath, physician, clinician, human standpoint to manage.
0: One of the things is that we are not really very good at real time backed into a corner ethical decision making. I mean, I I say this all the time. The worst time to make an ethical decision is when you have to. So that's the real importance of preparedness, not only medical preparedness, not only to be certain that we have enough PPE for those on the front lines, that we have enough medical resources in order to to treat to the level that we can, et cetera. But it's also ethical preparedness to understand what are the values that are guiding our decisions and not to leave individual physicians, you know, standing there trying to figure out how do I determine who gets treated and who does not, you know, when on any other day I would treat everybody. But today I cannot. And if you're just standing there all by yourself the decisions become ad hoc and the burden on the physician or the nurses or you know other healthcare workers is tremendous so that's why you know we're trying to make the case for preparedness for thinking through the ethical ramifications ahead of time you know over a cup of coffee with your colleagues ethics is never done well by yourself Ethics is a conversation, it's bringing to light values and visions, and then working through, and eventually, you wind up with a piece of paper with a policy on it. But there's a lot of ethical work that underlies those policies and those suggestions and guidelines.
1: To that point, uh, Margaret, the preparedness and the ethical obligation that we have to our healthcare facility facilities and healthcare personnel. What's really clear right now, obviously to the public and within our own healthcare community, is the supply chain shortage of, of the PPEs, right? Um, medications and vaccines, and also the test availability. So, yeah, there are currently about 153 generic drugs that are used for critical medical conditions, and they come from China and India. And so now we're dealing with uh, supply chain shortages in in the wake of this pandemic. So from an ethical perspective, because we were obviously not prepared enough (laughs) uh, currently, and to take your principle of being prepared for these kind of situations, do we now move forward? With rethinking where some of our really critical medications, PPE, where they're produced? Or do we move forward and maybe make international stockpiles, national stockpiles, state stockpiles of all of this for a future pandemic? I think that
0: we need to to think about where shortages might occur way ahead of time and be certain that the supply that we have figured out how the supply chains work, if I can't get it from one state to another, that's problematic. You know, it doesn't have to be that it's coming from India or China. It can be that it's coming from across the country, but our transportation system is not working as well etc so there there are lots of points where the bottom can drop out of the supply chain and i think that this has taught us that we need to really look at how do these critical medical supplies get to us and how much of them do we need on hand you know the kind of in case of emergency break glass How much of these critical medical resources do we need behind that glass?
2: Yeah, I agree. And I think it's so important, you know, just from the standpoint of how do we plan and prepare in this particular pandemic, we realize that, oh, there are certain PPE, certain aerosolization issues, certain concerns about contact and distancing, but other pandemics may be completely different. So in a perfect world, we would have essentially a top-down collaborative coalition that goes global. And so this is not something new, I'm sure, because if I'm thinking of it, then plenty of smarter people have thought about it, is that you essentially have, just like you said, international collaborative spirit and engagement where you have an international command center for global health pandemics. And this would be coordinated through World Health Organization or international agencies, as well as local CDC or other similar guy agencies and associations. And it would all be coordinated and facilitated through national and cross border collaborative communication. And I think the communication is probably the biggest lapse. We talked about transparency. There was limited transparency. We didn't have the communication and we did not have the collaboration on a global scale. And so the challenge is that. Affected a pandemic to a severe degree on the East Coast, but in some cases, like certain parts of California or other areas, they had time. And so some places didn't have, eventually, for example, certain areas now don't have the limited resources for the PPE. Right now, it's about testing. Okay. Testing is the biggest limiting bottleneck currently. However, if we flip that and say, okay, if we're thinking in the future, I actually see this as. A a paradigm of innovation and opportunity because we can learn from this. And the biggest mistake that we can do is not learn from every mistake that we've already done. And personally, without making any political intentions, I would say that we have failed as national citizens and countrymen to actually effect a response for this pandemic. So that responsibility and onus comes back to us as people, as Americans, Canadians, whoever we are, as to simply say that we need to embrace what we did wrong and not let it happen again. And so the words never again need to be within our consciousness. It is going to happen. So it's not that it's never again, but it's never again miss these steps. And at least we can recognize which steps we fell upon and which steps we can actually build upon. And so in in some sense, some of the opportunity is that these pipelines and development and supply chains can actually come back stateside. So I think there's an opportunity for regrowth of the American infrastructure for development. So I think in the long run, it's going to help us as a nation. But the problem right now is people are dying and we don't have the response we need.
1: Yeah, that's what I was getting at is that, you know, you can't rely on one or two places being your sole source of supplies for critical supplies, really. Right. So that's I think you're right. I think that this will probably force many countries, not, not just our own, to start looking at multiple supply chains and maybe bringing more opportunities for their own citizens to allow growth of those particular industries, whether it's pharmaceutical or production of things like PPE or even, for example, we talk about having widespread testing. Okay, we don't have enough reagents for all this widespread testing. There's a shortage of that as well. And where is all of that made? Again, overseas, you know, and not all of it, but a lot of it is overseas, right? So I think you're right. I think that this will probably allow for some growth and uh, opportunities uh, stateside.
0: Yeah, and I think that this is our opportunity to seriously consider about what are the incentives to develop vaccines? What are the incentives to develop antibiotics? Because both of those sorts of pharmaceuticals are not profit-making for companies. And so how can we start with public-private partnerships that keep us safe because of the fact that people are actually developing and innovating around both vaccines and antibiotics, which we have woefully neglected over the last decade or so. And so we find ourselves caught flat-footed when we get a new novel infectious disease. And we don't have the infrastructure in place to respond as rapidly as we could if we had good partnerships with good incentives to develop these sorts of pharmaceuticals and not always be focused on the next blockbuster drug that's going to give us a huge profit margin, but also to have a notion about not only stockholders, but also stakeholders other stakeholders, and the common good?
1: We see now that the economy has been devastated, and hopefully this will incentivize leaders in the business world to put more money into developing vaccines, though they may not provide uh, an immediate profit. But overall, in terms of preserving uh, our businesses, our economy, in the long term, this will be worthwhile.
2: So I would just like to make one uh, point about the prevention phenomenon. And in terms of prevention, the challenge in profitability and revenue stream is that if you prevent a disease from happening, you'll never see the long term implications of it. And you don't see the effects of how it decimates a population. And so that's the biggest challenge. Is in prevention. So, as bad as this pandemic is, the impact of the economy has really pulled everyone's bootstraps up and it created a shock to the world that I think is going to have a positive impact. I mean, everything when it happens negatively can be turned around. And I think what I'm hearing through the grapevine amongst a lot of investors is that they are going to be bringing this sort of development stateside. But it is a challenge. If you prevent a fracture, you don't see it. If you prevent a disease, you don't see the long-term implications. I mean, it's to some extent like how the flu, if you have a flu vaccine and someone doesn't get the flu, then everyone says, hey, it's fine. So in a sense, this is, I hope, going to make the business community realize that they need to plan for this. And I, I am definitely hearing that through the grapevine that that's coming, but it's gonna take time.
3: Do you think that will extend as far as preventative healthcare for much of the nation?
2: I hope so, absolutely. And I will say that there are, for example, currently the way healthcare works, it's it's procedural based. Uh, certainly, in in my profession, if I do surgery on a broken hip, that's how the reimbursement works. If you don't have a broken hip, then you don't do a procedure, you don't get admitted to a hospital, the hospital doesn't get paid and the hospital doesn't reap the rewards of a disease. So it's a challenge. I think it will, just one example would be how it can completely restructure how we think about healthcare and preventative healthcare maintenance. I think it's gonna become a really important Aspect of the next several decades. So, absolutely, I agree. It's a very valid point that we really need to look at prevention and maintenance of health more so than just catching up with disease.
1: And that's been primarily the way our healthcare system has performed, right? It's just based on, okay, you have the disease, we'll take care of it, not. We want to prevent you from getting this disease. So hopefully, I hope that we do go to more of a preventative healthcare model. We're seeing that patients who get SARS-CoV-2, the ones that are more at risk are the ones that have a comorbid underlying illness, like heart disease, high blood pressure, or some sort of pulmonary condition, or what have you. You're just at higher risk. So if we start looking at keeping ourselves healthier, right? perhaps th- this will change
3: our change the way we practice medicine too. And one thing that this pandemic has really highlighted in the U.S. are the ethnic disparities. And I think at least a lot of that is can be attributed to our healthcare system and the lack of accessible medicine and preventative care for a lot of our nation, unfortunately.
2: Absolutely. I mean, the disparity in mortality and morbidity amongst the segregated ethnic minorities, and socioeconomic disparities are absolutely just terrible. And it absolutely, it's unbelievable that it's really spotlighted how mismanaged our healthcare economy is. Without pointing any fingers at anyone, it is a big problem. I mean, the highest mortality are in the Hispanics and Black community, and that's a big problem. And it's its really hard to wrap your head around it, and simply ignore it. And again, I look at this as a terrible situation that we have to turn around as an opportunity for investment back in ourselves, our health, and our community amongst all. It has to be an egalitarian approach to healthcare prevention and maintenance. And absolutely, it needs to happen starting yesterday.
3: Absolutely. I hope this is the wake up call our country's needed.
1: I I hope so. But then I think what concerns me, though, is like all the people that still don't buy into the fact that this virus is a real entity and that there are people who are becoming critically ill. So you need everyone to buy into the fact that this is a serious problem that we're dealing with in order to really be able to turn things around
0: and And it's a serious problem that's shining light on other serious problems. You know the whole notion of the intersectionality between race and poverty and health, which is just being highlighted, as Faisal said, by this pandemic, and the mortality rate in certain communities being so much higher than the general mortality rate. And also the infection rate, the same thing. And so it's highlighted and now it's exacerbating those who are food poor. I mean, more people now are losing access to food. Some of that's a supply chain problem. Some of that is kind of the lack of vision of why in the world farmers are letting crops rot in the field in South Dakota, and people are going hungry in Georgia. I mean, look at a map. That is a straight shot, right? Why, why can we not get the food from point A, where it is now rotting in the fields and they're throwing out milk, to point B, where they're hungry and the lines for food banks are huge and the food banks run out of food on a daily basis so it's highlighting those food deserts and it's also highlighting areas where our lack rural areas particularly where our lack of access to healthcare is just exacerbated now by the the pandemic and our focus on how people are doing during this time and what their access to to care is. And if we don't learn from this, as my great aunt used to say, woe betide us.
2: That's a good quote. So I absolutely agree. I was shocked to learn about all this rotting food and milk. Even the dairy industry, there was milk just being Eliminated and wasted because it couldn't go anywhere. And people are more concerned about the cost of oil right now. I mean, oil suddenly becoming negative dollars a barrel or down to $14 a barrel or whatever the current number is, that was more shocking than the fact that people were going hungry. And just because oil is a commodity that's valued more than hunger. And I think we should need to change that in terms of hunger and health. Instead of having a stock market of commodities, we need a stock market of health. And so, you know, simple things like, okay, so should the tobacco industry suddenly become a vegan industry? Instead of growing tobacco, should they be growing spinach? And uh, that's probably gonna bring a lot of flack to a lot of industry uh, veterans in the tobacco industry. But if people that are dying are higher mortality and those with lung disease and smokers, then that's a problem. And then you look at cholesterol and obesity, and if all of a sudden you shift, it's a minor shift, and that thinking to simply shift your polarity by five, 10 degrees in your thinking, it can be a major shift in a long-term consequence of healthcare. And I think it needs to happen across the board, whether it's in fast food chains, whether it's in our how we supply our, our food and processing there are many things. And I keep going back to innovation and opportunity because as bad as things are now, you know this is the new biotech growth food revolution uh, and health revolution. And maybe that's really what it is. As you said earlier, McKenna, that it's going to shift. I mean, we need to shift this into a preventative health revolution as opposed to a commodity revolution.
3: Yeah, we might be going that way with these uh, meatpacking and factories.
1: We have to be a little bit more open to you know the different food sources for sure at this point. So I'm gonna just shift gears here a little bit. Wanted to kind of talk about our current testing and treatment measures, kind of where we're sitting at right now. I think one of the the big issues we we did touch upon this earlier is the need for widespread testing, but the concern is obviously the availability of that testing and then also the reliability of that testing. So the concern right now is that for testing, the infrastructure is not available. And this is not just an issue in the U.S. It seems to be, you know, still a worldwide issue. We don't have enough reagents for to run our PCR tests to detect the, the virus. Because we've also needed tests rapidly, there are a number of tests that have been made available because private sectors have become involved, right? The FDA relaxed uh, their criteria for the development of tests. And they really only had minimal criteria, it seems. So that's kind of led to some problems as well in terms of false negative and false positive rates, not only for the PCR tests for the virus, but also for the antibody tests. And the current, uh, there is one antibody test that's seems to have the best uh, sensitivity and specificity out there right now. I believe it's called Celex. And this is based on their own data. So they have a 93.8% sensitivity and a 95% specificity. So we would normally say that for a diagnostic test, that's pretty good. But when we're dealing with a pandemic, when we're dealing with a virus that's highly infectious and easily transmissible, you're still going to have a background population that's going to be missed. And so you'll have false positives out there, false negatives out there. And we're dealing with millions of people around the world. So that number actually becomes pretty high. So what is an acceptable false negative, false positivity rate for a test in this situation? And there's not a good answer, but that's what I sit and think about. I'm like, you know, we talk about these tests And there might be some really good tests, but there's still going to be so many people that we miss that are going to continue to uh, carry the virus.
2: Absolutely. And I think here's the challenge in this particular virus is that I could be tested or you could be, anyone could be tested negative and tomorrow they can contract the virus. An hour after the test, they can contract the virus. And that is the scariest part of this pandemic. And so the, the rationale behind testing is to at least have a managerial level of understanding of what's happening. Because if you find someone in a high-risk category that is positive, you will monitor them closely or that individual can social distance and repeat the test. And in some cases, do you repeat the test daily, weekly, or every six days Personally, I find it an affront to American public that certain sectors of our society have, are testing themselves every six days and publicly admit that they are COVID-free and testing themselves every six days, and yet there is inadequate testing to the public. If the captain of the ship jumps on a lifeboat and the ship sinks, that's a problem. And that is currently what's happening right now. We don't have enough tests in order to evaluate patients, and that's my concern. We don't even know what our current stockpile by the federal government is. There is zero transparency. And so it's more than testing in this particular case. Even if you look at HIV, if you were negative, you were negative. And if you had a a test, you know that it's a communicable disease in a certain intimate or physical intervention intravenous or otherwise transmission. In this particular case, it could be a casual encounter where you simply walk by an individual who coughed five minutes ago in the same six-foot square sphere that you just passed through. That's what makes this scary. And so at this point, it goes beyond testing. I mean, we have to think a decade beyond this. And we have to think how some pharmaceutical biotech companies are thinking. So you probably heard about this without naming a particular company. A pharmaceutical company has contracted the certain development from normally what takes three to five years down to five months. And they were currently on the news talking about it. Their chief medical officer talked about it. And I think that is a great benefit to what we can do when we need to do it and put our resources together. And yet, it may turn out that vaccine may not work. And that's what makes it scary.
1: And even if the vaccine works, we don't know if we're going to have a robust antibody response. We might develop some antibodies, but how robust is it? How long? You know, we don't know if the the antibodies are around for three months, six months, is it going to be years?
2: And is the virus going to mutate? So all of a sudden a year from now on an annual basis just like the flu you get a new novel flu virus are we going to end up i mean the people say that this is related to other viruses and so is this something that happens every 10 years is it going to be logarithmic is it going to happen every 10 1 year 1 month i mean how is this going to progress it we need to stay well ahead of this curve and currently I'm afraid that we're not taking this and crushing it. So instead of having a candy crush phenomenon, what we need is a pandemic crush response. And it's not happening right now.
1: And I think, you know, again, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So this is, you know, we will have another coronavirus or we're going to have another flu pandemic, there will be something else. That's certainty. So you're right. We need to prepare and we need to be, we need to be all on the same page and we need to take this extremely seriously and put in the proper investment research, you know, and make this a priority so that, you know, it doesn't devastate society. Or continue to devastate society, right? So it's already caused so much devastation. Faisal, you and I were talking about this with another colleague. The concern for social unrest—we're already seeing elements of it now. What's going to happen a month from now? Two months from now? And what's going to happen down the line if you know when the next spike occurs? We have to all sort of, from leadership down, take this extremely seriously. Yeah.
0: Here's my sobering thought for this morning, and 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 that is that the common cold is a coronavirus. And so you think about how often do you catch a cold? How often does a cold come around? And don't you think that if we could have developed a vaccine against a common cold, that we wouldn't have? Of course we would have. So to kind of Think of this more as a you know kind of the common cold. This virus being much more devastating than a cold, but we're at the same kind of spot in terms of being able to treat. You know, with a cold, we can get some symptomatic relief, but you know, you can go home and take ibuprofen. And be fine in seven days, or you can go home and just drink plenty of fluids and be fine in seven days. You know, there's just not much that medical science can do for you around a cold. And that's kind of how I think about where we are now with COVID 19. But the stakes are so much higher. And until we do two things one, get testing both viral and, and antibody testing that is comparable across testing platforms, right? I mean, one of the things is that if you have two different ways that we're testing for antibodies, do, how do these results compare to these results? And and we don't know that yet. There's it's kind of a free-for-all out there on antibiotic on antibody testing, and people are developing different platforms that give you sort of different readouts and different numbers. Well, what do those mean compared to each other so that we know what percent of the population who has been infected? right so you need history what percent of the population who has been infected has mounted an antibody response and then for how long does that antibody response last and also are there people who we don't have a diagnosis you know we don't know if they had covid-19 but still have an antibody response Right. And that's, you know, all the conversation about immune passports and things like that. But until we have testing that's reliable and comparable and we know what those numbers mean, in my view, there's no passport. You need to have better testing on the antibody side, much better testing on the antibody side than we have right now. And people are working on it and it's going, you know, comparatively quite quickly. But the number of different platforms means that the step that we need to take is to compare what do those results actually mean in terms of populations.
2: I agree. And, and it actually goes back to, um, I think, what was mentioned earlier, um, and I think it's been actually blogged by a, a white paper written by a colleague of ours, specifically on having a live dashboard where it's not just about who has what, but what interventions, treatments, and testing. So if people have, people have been tested by a certain type of test and got a certain type of vaccine and got a certain type of antibody response, and what other treatments or interventions or preventative health or regimens and comorbidities are associated with it on a live dashboard just like we need a health tracker we need we don't I don't care about any ticker tape telling me what the cost of an oil is because it's irrelevant if there's no one there to spend the oil and that's what's happening right now it is cheaper to throw the oil, dump the oil than it is to store it and transport it and there's no way you're going to dump the oil and right now, there are people that are being dumped and dying, and that's what we need to prevent. So that is critical.
1: But, you know, and, and just to add to that, again, with all the antibody tests, you can certainly put that information out there and who's developed antibodies with whatever test they utilize. But again, it comes back down to the reliability. So many tests have shown that they are not reliable too many false positives or false negatives. So again, that it's kind of hard to, you can put all that data out there, but that data isn't necessarily accurate.
0: And the thing to recognize with any data about COVID-19, you know, it was the disclaimer you, you started with. Any data is a snapshot. It's true for right now. It's not a video. It's not a long, drawn-out story. It's a snapshot. It's right now. It's your values at this moment. And as Faisal said before, you know, you can test negative for the virus today, be positive tomorrow because you were now exposed between this morning and tomorrow morning. And the same thing for since we don't know what the antibody response is and how long it lasts it's the same It's the same thing. It's a snapshot. It's not a long video story. Absolutely.
3: I kind of want to go back to the lack of testing and the shortages we're facing in that department. Faisal, I totally agree with you that certain people should not be tested daily, and that seems like maybe a improper use of those tests when we're in such a shortage. But what about for medical professionals? Should they be tested more frequently since they're on the front lines? should that change at all for for medical professionals for initial or repeat testing?
2: Yeah, it's a great question and it's uh, one of the challenges we have and I'll give you a start off by giving you an example that of how broken our system of response is and I was reached out by a colleague who was contacted by a company in Korea saying, "Hey, we've got all these extra COVID tests, Do you want them." And so Through these contacts, I connected them with the FDA. And it just so happened that the previous day, and then I had a communication with the center director there and who I know from my time there. And basically, they had just passed the policy to allow rapid processing and review of COVID testing because of the uh, pandemic that was happening. And so... Here it was that we're piecemealing trying to get a coordinated response to getting more tests. And it's kind of scary. You know, this should have been something that the federal government and international agencies and bodies through collaborative spirit, sort of said, Okay, who needs tests? Let's get all these tests that are unused. This is the safety and efficacy data posted on the website. Boom, you're good to go. That's important to understand that the limited in testing availability is a problem. Now, as far as healthcare workers, that's a really important question and it varies across the board. In a perfect world, yes, every healthcare worker would be tested and you know it, the results. The problem is what happens tomorrow? What happens when they go back to see their family? What happens when they go to the grocery store? And that's a challenge. But In terms of healthcare workers, that's a question that came up just in policy and governance development at various hospitals around the Bay Area. Some hospitals decided that every healthcare worker from nursing to staff to physicians would be tested. Other facilities decided that only patients would get tested and healthcare workers would have self-screening protocols and based on symptoms, they would get tested. So it's really difficult. And right now, the bottleneck is resource limitation you know, the ethics are clear. Yeah, in an ideal world, you could test everyone. But if you only have 200 tests, and the local government and county and state only have, say, 10,000 tests or 100,000 tests, how far do you take that testing? So it's become a resource limitation, and ethical obligations come in, and ethical guidelines are then determining what is best, Because the resources are limited and that's not ideal. Right. Absolutely.
1: I wanted to also talk about the emergent medical conditions and things that, you know, need to be treated. But for example, Faisal, there are a lot of things that you and I would normally be fixing, but we probably aren't doing right now because, you know, they're not as high priority.
3: I think we're all familiar with the idea of required vaccinations and healthcare screenings before enrolling in school or a new hospital, et cetera. Do you think that a vaccine or antibody test for COVID-19 could be required for returning to work in the future?
2: Yeah, it's a very good question. And certainly if you look at how we as healthcare workers go through repeat credentialing and review on a biannual or annual basis, we have to verify a TB test and TB confirmation of negativity or treatment if you're positive or past history of hepatitis B vaccination, hepatitis A, and all the series of vaccinations. So that often occurs on an annual basis and is part of every credentialing application. And you have to carry immunity passports. I actually have a colleague in uh, Ottawa, Dr. and Wilson, who's uh, developed a really good format for monitoring and verifying immune status for just children's vaccines. And that's something that, you know, right now... I carry a card or a sheet of paper that says what I'm uh, vaccinated for, and I have to photocopy it and upload it and send it. And it's all in disparate methods. But having one location where you can just verify it and confirm it would be great. That would be ideal. And I think long-term immune verification is going to be important. However, if you look at HIV, there's a lot of social stigma and HIPAA related to that. So Knowing whether you're HIV uh, positive or negative is a personal question. It's something that um, has social stigma associated with it. And the way COVID-19 is happening, and I see this in how communities and sometimes even neighbors interact, is that wearing the mask, protecting you, or we can't hang around, there's social distancing. Is there going to be social stigma associated with COVID-19? Because if it's affecting certain ethnic, socioeconomic communities more so than others, are there going to be social stigmas associated with it? So I think that certain communities and certainly healthcare workers, I would want some type of immunity verification to provide trust to my patients and community that I have been verified. And I think that's going to be something that would be important long-term. But again, that's something that I'm responding to right now? That could completely change because we could have a long-term elimination of this virus, which seems unlikely. The next question related to HIPAA, that's a big concern because right now, I think it was very important to know what's happening in nursing homes. You see, hear it all over the news that you have parents and family members and children trying to find out about their family member or parent or grandparent in a nursing home. And all of a sudden they find out that they died. I mean, there was one nursing home in California where it was only identified because that nursing home asked for 19 body bags. And then it would raise the flag to say, hey, what's going on? Why are you asking for 19 body bags? And that became a concern. And then the family found out afterwards. They were not notified because they couldn't keep up with it. And there has to be some degree of transparency. And that's why it comes really down to without HIPAA violation, you can have county government public health official notification and management of the disease within a HIPAA secure environment. And right now, we don't have that because the nursing homes are more concerned about their reputation and even if they're not, even if they're doing everything right, they just don't have the resources to figure out what's going on. They're just trying to manage all the patients and take care of what's happening, and everything's just ramping out of control. So it's a crisis. So I don't say that the nursing homes may or may not be at fault. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I don't know. I am not a judge or jury. But the problem is that with this crisis and pandemic, it is just accelerating out of control, and that's the problem. And so we should not violate any HIPAA secure security, but we should be conscientious of public health.
0: And you know, we're only going to kind of be compliant with these measures if we trust that it will not come back to haunt us. So the idea of an immune passport, is that going to be a good thing or not? At the beginning of this, people were very afraid of other people who fit a particular ethnic, racial, ethnic profile that, well, they might have it. You know, it started in China. Maybe these people all have it. And I think that's a lesson for us. It was on campuses that suddenly Asian Americans were facing discriminatory behavior merely because they were Asian Americans, not because they had been anywhere near China, you know, potentially exposed, et cetera. So we have to do this in a way. That it allows our better angels to come forward rather than our kind of default position of fear and discrimination.
2: Absolutely. And that was exactly what I was going to say. The fear is what drives apprehension. And we have to realize that we have to understand this fear, and it's based on a lack of knowledge. And if we can understand this disease better and we can wrap our Health infrastructure around it, we can eliminate, maybe not eliminate, but we can actually manage that fear into a better understanding and level of care that really, I think, will revolutionize how healthcare is delivered. And that gets back to what your comment, McKenna, was earlier about preventative maintenance and healthcare prevention. And I think it's absolutely critical. So, uh, yeah, so I think, Margaret, you're absolutely right. We need to manage our fear in this healthcare crisis, because it's not just happening in schools and universities. I mean, a colleague of mine who's Korean uh, noticed that happened to her when she went to a local coffee shop in February and early March before this became an issue. And she sat down and basically noticed that there was segregation of cohorts of people at various tables and this is a coffee shop where everyone has sits at common tables and it didn't matter who was sitting where what ethnic uh, variety you were and it was really interesting and and she got angry and you can see that that is something that is scary and when you have on public television and public demonstrations of a certain class of society or certain community members that are showing up in guns saying that people go back to work. And this was on CNN the other day, that there are people of color and certain ethnicities that feel like they're the ones being targeted because they feel like it's the brown and black communities that are being told to go back to work by another more affluent class of community. And that is not something we can allow happen. And I don't think the leadership of this government and internationally global politicians should allow happen. And we need to act on this because this pandemic transcends not just healthcare but humanity.
1: That was extremely well said. There is something else that I did want to talk about. And, you know, we touched on it earlier in terms of policy in hospitals treating medical conditions. Yes, we're dealing with COVID, but heart attacks are still happening. Strokes are still happening. People who need dialysis, you know, for you and I, like we fix musculoskeletal disorders, right? So we can only do urgent cases, but there are still some serious uh, issues for people in order to live a normal, healthy lives that have to be addressed. And What kind of policies or who should be involved in policymaking? Do we just leave it to local hospitals to do it? Do we need national organizations to really give explicit guidelines? What are your guys' thoughts?
2: That's something I've personally uh, been directly involved with. I think it's a big challenge. And the good thing is that we had our national organizations and societies and medical societies sort of come together and provide some resources and guidelines. And I think it's incredible that the medical leadership in this community has come together in a manner that I think has embraced healthcare and allowed local individual physicians like me feel comfortable, there is a sense of cohesiveness to our healthcare community. So for example, right now, elective surgeries are planned to be reopened and are reopening. And an elective roadmap to surgery in particular uh, has been a challenge because there's urgent surgery. You break a hip, you have a fractured ankle, you have an open injury, you need it fixed that needs to be taken care of. That can't necessarily wait two weeks, six weeks, or eight weeks. Absolutely not. It needs to be addressed. And it may need surgery. It may need casting. But those are personal, direct, interactive interventions that need to happen. Now, elective surgery, for example, say you have a a meniscal tear that's not locked, so it's not urgent. You have arthritis and you need a joint replacement. You have a rotator cuff tear It needs surgery. You have your 40 over 40, and you need your annual colonoscopy. That's something that needs to happen. So all of those things become important. So these procedures and elective surgeries need to have a roadmap, and that's something that is happening. So the American College of Surgery with the anesthesia societies, the nursing societies, all came together and created a joint roadmap as county health officials and local health officials, as well as hospitals came together and put together in various manners, certain roadmaps for their particular hospital and community to create a roadmap as to how to bring elective surgeries back. That's been something that's still ongoing and is something that's been raised a lot of controversies. I think there's the management of the hospital and the medical community, and sometimes they're aligned and sometimes they're at odds. And I think the best, most amazing part of this whole venture is that we are being forced to come together in a cohesive manner to figure out how to rebuild our healthcare community. And I think, again, that is the opportunity, is that it's brought us together and that has really allowed us to... Put together and enact policies that is in the best interests of patients, that maintains HIPAA, that maintains our medical ethics and preserves our Hippocratic oath, but also aligns hospital risk mitigation and medical liability, as well as community trust. And right now, and I think this is going to be the most important aspect of healthcare, is rebuilding that trust in our community that patients can feel safe returning to our hospitals, clinics, and facilities and have care delivered in a safe manner. That's going to be the most important aspect right now.
0: Yeah, I agree with that because our healthcare is only as good as the trust that patients have in the system and the trust that healthcare workers have in in patients' Feeling safe and able to access the services that are there. Um, I think the question about dealing with the backlog of healthcare needs is a huge one. And I'm glad to hear that there has actually been community, broad based community conversation about how to do that. One of the other bright spots, I think, is the kind of rapid development of telemedicine. And at least, I think, a kind of mutual understanding on the part of the healthcare system and physicians and us as patients, that maybe we don't have to run into the office for everything. That there are some things that actually doing a video chat or a phone call is actually better. I know my personal physician has always been one who, if she can keep me out of her office, she will do that. And her rationale is, there are sick people here. You don't want to meet any of the other sick people. So I'm going to write you this prescription or I'm going to ask you to take these steps and then we'll have another chat tomorrow. I've really appreciated that because the worst place to get better is a hospital because it's just a lot of opportunities for other infections, et cetera, et cetera. So that is, I think, our ability to do telemedicine, to have CMS say that this is a fine thing for patients on Medicare, et cetera, to do is going to be a real boon for us going forward. And I hope that will continue to be offered in a robust way so that we can kind of get more preventive care done through using technology that we didn't have before when, in fact, you had to go into the office or the doctor had to come and visit you. Let's take advantage of the opportunities that we have to do healthcare care in a different way, but I think in the long run, perhaps a better way.
1: I agree with you. I think we were already seeing telemedicine evolving a few years ago is, you know, is becoming something that you could see down the line we would be moving towards. Right. And this pandemic just accelerated it again. To a point that you made earlier, Faisal, you know, with uh, industries and innovations coming out of this pandemic, the, the area of telemedicine and improving the technology there, there's probably going to be a lot more uh, innovations with that sector.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to also recognize, just as you pointed out, that it wasn't just uh, the telehealth development. I mean, it's been developed for some time, it's been developing for some time. I mean, people can go on zoom microsoft teams and then there was other uh, various platforms for uh telehealth and they were all there but now what's happened is the deployment has accelerated and the reimbursement has been acceptable more acceptable insurance companies a lot of times wouldn't necessarily reimburse or wouldn't let necessarily reimburse at the same rate and then there was a question of synchronous or asynchronous telehealth and those were certainly issues. Now, all of those have been eliminated for the sake of this pandemic to get things reimbursed. And I think patients are realizing the convenience. I mean, I had started using telehealth for the convenience of patients when they didn't need to come in to see me. Now, in orthopedics, I need to physically examine a patient and that touch component of the physical exam is important. But if they're coming to find out about their MRI result and have a conversation about follow-up where I don't need to physically examine them, then a telehealth appointment is very reasonable. Or for example, if they just had a wound check and they just said, oh, hey, I'm concerned about my wound. Can you look at it before my appointment two weeks ago because I can't fit in to your clinic? And then that is something that's very useful. The other aspect of uh, technology that I think is going to accelerate very rapidly and don't believe that robots are going to take over the world. But robots and a remote access to robotic visual machines has become very useful. For example, a number of telehealth robots have been implemented. Now, they've been in use for a while. I mean, the first time I saw a telehealth robot was in the ICU at UCLA many years ago. And it was basically in the middle of the night, a little machine with a video screen and a physician on the other end would do his rounds in the middle of the night when he didn't necessarily have to come in or if he had to see monitor a patient before deciding whether he needed to come in or not. That was fascinating. That was about 10 years ago. Now, all of a sudden, that's something that's being embraced. And so the idea that, we have more interactive or maybe even uh, machine learning, artificially intelligent machines and robotics within our healthcare community is, again, an opportunity, but it also allows that social distancing. And so I think that's something we may see in the wave of healthcare development where it'll take a whole new turn. So the idea of probably 30 years ago, the idea of virtual surgery was first thrown out there, that someone sitting in New York could operate on a patient or monitor surgery with someone sitting in Singapore. And so that could be taken to a whole new level. And all of that technology will be advanced and accelerated because now, if you're having a surgical intervention where you're having aerosolization, blood-borne pathogens, and disease transmission in an unknown environment, then all of a sudden the machines can do the labor and the surgeon scientists can be protected behind a barrier. And so that is going to transform healthcare as well. And it doesn't have to be surgery. It could be interactive as well for a physical exam. So I take that back. I'm going to be replaced by a robot very soon.
1: Okay. I was going to say, actually, Faisal just made an intro to the rest of my podcast, essentially. <laughs> right? so, so just for the audience, we will, this will be what we will be focusing on for uh, the future podcast. You know, the intersection of medicine and technology, especially with machine learning, AI, robotics. Yes, Faisal, one day a robot will replace you. <laughs> I don't know if you
2: noticed, but I'm actually a robot.
1: Yeah, I was going to say there's a switch at the back of your uh, neck. (laughs) Exactly. No,
0: but I think that the boon here is the ability then also to deliver healthcare to those, for want of a better term, healthcare deserts. So rural America, where it's a 50 mile drive or a 100 mile drive to the nearest hospital. And The global picture of trying to, we've been focusing on the United States here and our response to COVID-19, et cetera. Well, the next hotspot is predicted to be Africa. And, you know, the lack of healthcare infrastructure in Africa is, is well known and frankly, at this point, quite frightening. And so will we in the future be able to use some of these technologies to get into more rural places in the United States and also globally in terms of being able to deliver quality health care? I mean, when you have countries in Africa where they don't have one ventilator, let alone trying to allocate 200 of them what do you do? And it's not just COVID-19. They don't have a ventilator. So everyone who benefits here from ventilatory support, people with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, congestive heart failure, heart surgery, post-surgery, etc cetera, none of that happens because you don't have that one piece of equipment. So I think that you know, among the legion of lessons that we need to learn from COVID-19 is just the dire straits of people in our own country and globally around access to, to health care and around access to things that we in the United States take for granted
2: absolutely and actually i wanted to triggered one point that i think is critical as well i mean reaching these people in remote areas and countries absolutely and one of the things that and it actually ties really well into the supply chain is the boon of how additive manufacturing is going to really take off in the near future for example that was one of the things that even happened now there was a colleague at ucla who basically helped develop some additive manufacturing ppe masks to try and help with the healthcare community. So I think the idea that we can have these sort of locations and sites and drop-off locations where all of a sudden you design, build, and ship, it's not being shipped. It's literally being built at a local facility on a printing machine and then delivered. So you have not only development, deployment, and on-time delivery in real time, almost instantaneously. And that is something that I think is really going to improve our supply chain as well. It may not happen necessarily in biotech uh, antibodies and certain types of delivery of healthcare products, but it can happen with braces, PPE technology. And there are certain 3D implanted manufacturers, and it could happen that you could have various 3D printed, well, they already exist, 3D printed drugs. So that is going to just take it to a whole other level. So we don't need these facilities in China making a particular drug. They can be designed, developed, and then printed on demand. And so I think that's another aspect of technology that I think I'm sure will come up uh, again and again, and is going to just revolutionize
3: healthcare. Pretty amazing.
1: Why don't we close with you guys giving your final thoughts
0: on this? I can start here. And I think one of the things that we didn't talk about that I just want to start again is the opening up of the economy and the kind of tendency that I hear in a lot of public conversations to put the economy over against health, that somehow they're in some sort of competition. And that this is, there'll be winners and losers here. And I think that this is not really a zero sum game, that we have to think about this in terms of a win win situation, because the economy depends on the health, on our health, right? We can't go to work if we are sick. And if we're not at work, the economy suffers. And the economy suffers. And then we're not able to go to work because the jobs are gone. You have to see this as pieces of a whole. And we need to think in more creative ways around the public's health and economic well-being and understand that it's true here in the United States, but it's also true globally, that we have to think about the world's health and the world's economic well-being as part of a whole, not as in competition, but a, in a partnership. And that's going to require a lot of good, creative in- engagement of our ethical imagination.
2: That was well said.
1: Faisal, do you have any closing thoughts? or
2: Yeah. So I think this is going to be a real big challenge. And I think just as Margaret said, it really requires... Our collaboration in many aspects of care. And from the standpoint of opportunities, I think it, this crisis has made us realize our weakest links as well as our opportunities for innovation. And I, right now, at this point, if there's one thing that I can be proud of, is that I'm proud to be a physician in, during this pandemic. And I just feel it's an honor to serve our community and be part of the healthcare workers and the ongoing revolution in healthcare to make sure that our communities are safe, that my family is safe, and that we return back to a new level of normalcy where we are healthy, functional adults in a functional economy with an excellent, optimized quality of life.
1: Very well said. (laughs) Well, I want to thank you both. Uh, This has been an excellent discussion, conversation. I think that we talked about a lot of great topics, solutions, and just ideas, thought-provoking ideas.
3: Anything to add? Uh, A lot more optimistic than uh, it could have been. I'm uh, happy that we're looking at the silver linings and hope that we can uh, take the opportunity that this pandemic has presented to uh, improve our healthcare and a lot of aspects of our life. Thank you guys. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Stay healthy. Bye.
1: This show is being produced by StudioPod. And for more information, go to studiopodsf.com.